Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 5, Episode 37, produced by Jesus Centered Resources, which isn't really a thing, but it is kind of a thing, but not really a thing. It's just a thing that I made up in my head as an umbrella for everything I'm doing right now. But um, by the way, I'll have an announcement uh, in the next episode, next week's episode, about what I'm doing going forward. So that's exciting, but I can't tell you yet. So I'm going to tell you anyway now. And uh, this will probably still be produced by Jesus Centered Resources, which is a thing that isn't a thing. But you can look forward to next week. I'll have an exciting announcement next week. So uh, my name is Rick. Uh, I'm author of the just-released Jesus-Centered Daily, Daily Devotional. Uh, if you, if you uh, haven't come across it yet or want to get a little snippet of it to see what it's like, see if you might want this for yourself or maybe even for a, a Christmas gift, you can go to the website that I built my own self called JesusCenteredDaily.com, JesusCenteredDaily.com, and there you can download a free sampler. It's a 10-day sample of the devotion. You can watch a video, or you can even order it there. You can also go directly to Amazon and order the Jesus Center Daily there if you would like to. And on Amazon, you know, you can use their little feature that lets you look inside the book, so you can skip around inside the book if you want to see what some of these devotions are like. But it was two years of my life invested in this daily devotional. And um, uh, I just love this little thing. So if, if you're looking for something to draw you into closer orbit with Jesus every day, go get a copy of the Jesus Center Daily. And if you've already got a copy, please, please, please post a review on Amazon. That actually does help. You can help put your oar in the water and help this thing to get out to more people if you'll just head over to Amazon and post your review. It doesn't take very long. Just a review doesn't mean three paragraphs. It's not like school. It's just a couple sentences. So anyway, please head over to Amazon if you already bought one and you could uh, uh, throw in with this effort by just posting your review. So this is the third episode in a series I'm calling Present Concerns. And we'll be exploring the issues and the challenges that sort of surround our lives today and then find ways to connect them back directly to how Jesus dealt with similar issues in his time so we can learn from him. That's what this podcast is all about, paying ridiculous attention to him so that we come to understand his heart. So understanding Jesus' heart doesn't sound very practical on the outset, but it's the most practical thing we can do because when we come to embrace the depth of his heart, our hearts get changed and then everything in our life gets changed. So today we're going to explore the future. <laughs> Talk about a present concern, the future. So there's a study by the American Psychological Association that found that almost all of Americans, 83%, say that worrying about the future is a major source of stress in their life. And seven in 10 Americans say this is the lowest point in the country's history that they have personally witnessed. Uh, so 83% say worrying about the future is a major source of stress in their life. And I think it's just going to keep going up, keep ramping up as we head now into the winter 
and we're now in the third wave of the COVID virus. And there's just tension all around us and wondering about the, the other night I asked uh, the, the group of teenagers that meets in our backyard every week. Um, I asked them to raise their hands um, uh, through, I went through a list of a series of fears. If you remember from last week's episode on fear, I went through a list of fears with them and I asked them to raise their hand if they were afraid of that thing. And when I got to the future, everyone in the backyard raised their hand. <laughs> so the future is a big deal. And once again, joining me for this episode is none other than the, the uh, infamous Beckinator, my old and much younger partner in crime. I'm really great, grateful she's cleared space in her packed life to drop in and be a part of the, this episode. So Becky, welcome. Hi. Um, well, it's great to be back again. I'm so grateful to especially be with all of you during such a critical time in our country, in our world. Um, and I mean, actually more our world, we know we have listeners who, who join us from all over the world. Um, and so the present concerns are not just, I think for America, I think they're for everyone right now. Um, as I've been kind of, uh, processing the last few weeks of what we've been talking about, something that's been really interesting to me and, um, partially just because of the way that I consume media. Um, and, you know, kind of see the world through my Instagram um, filter, I was, I've just been really surprised that there aren't more discussions about um, the biggest things that Jesus talks about and warns us against divisiveness, fear, worry, all of these things, um, that there aren't more people having these conversations and saying, wow, I know that there's a lot of scary things happening in the world right now, but maybe we should have um, some discussions as a church about um, division, fear. Um, but I, I just, I'm not seeing any of those conversations. So I'm grateful that Rick um, allowed me to come back and so that we can have be a place where you can have these conversations about. Yeah, it's um, interesting what you're saying there, Becky, too, that when you're, when you're in fight or flight mode, which I think the entire country is in fight or flight mode right now, when you're in that place, you're not really theologically reflecting. <laughs> you're, you're just gripped by the adrenaline. That, that, that's a good way of saying it too. I just feel like everyone's just gripped and caught up in their adrenaline right now. So I'm wondering relative to this fear that we're going to, that we're going to address today, this fear of the future, um, or, or what is the future hold, or what is my relationship with the future, or how does the future, my impression of the future, impact my everyday life now? How would you say your attitude toward the future is different today than it was maybe two years ago when you were trying to find your way out of crisis? Um, what, what's your attitude toward the future today, and how does it compare to two years ago, say? Yeah, I used to run around. Um, I used to run around my life trying to keep everything under control, and that was just the reality of the life that I lived. Was I had to, I had to be in an enormous amount of control to keep my life from falling off of the edge most of the time. And um, when I finally got to the point where I was just really not in control, I had to just completely let all of that go. And I think the the top things that I've learned is that safety is really a myth um, because I was, I was in a, 
I, I believed that I was in a safe environment. I was not a safe in a safe environment, but I was living in that for many years. Um, and safety is not the same thing as protection, um, that protection comes from Jesus. And also the biggest thing for me is that I used to live in a lot of fear of losing the things around me, um, my comforts, the, the, and I, I would say things like, um, the things that I worked so hard to build, or, um, I was afraid of losing, um, just all the things that I had worked for my career, my life, all of those things. I don't have any fear about, I don't have any fear around that anymore. Um, I, I don't have anxiety about losing the things around me. Um, it's all just ethereal. It's, it's just ethereal things to me. Do, do you think that's in part, I mean, uh, not everyone knows your whole story, but, but in a, in a snippet, you, you pretty much lost everything yeah. at one point in your life. Do you think what you just said is a direct result of having experienced losing everything? I, what I experienced was not just the, the losing part. It was that I lost everything in a quest to follow and pursue Jesus instead. Hmm. And that pursuit was, was worth more than anything that I had. Hmm. Um, when I, even when I got some of my stuff back, all of it pretty much just went to the goodwill because it was just invaluable to me. It didn't have any value, um, to me anymore. And I just wanted to start fresh. So, um, there's a couple of things there, like what Jesus built in me during that time of, of having nothing was more powerful than anything, um, that I, I had worked for 20 years to build. It was, it was more valuable. Um, it, it just, it has more lasting value to me. Um, and then the other thing is that I realized that I can always get something back <laughs> You can always get some, you know, I have a whole house of things now and it didn't take very long for that to happen. I have a husband and I have a full life and I have a job that um, is both financially and fulfilling and also, um, you know, fulfilling in every other way. But for me, the promise of um, God's provision is more true to me than it ever has been that he can be trusted that he is actually can be trusted and so i feel that sense of security and so i'm not afraid of anything else i really truly believe that he will provide for me no matter what yeah that's and that's really beautifully said becky that um i think that you just described also the journey of our life toward maturity I'm all the time telling these, trying to help these teenagers and engaging them in conversation and experiences that will uh, directly draw them into the heart of, heart of Jesus. And the point, and we're always reiterating this, is that we are, we're sort of, our default setting is to trust only because of our circumstantial reality. As long as our circumstances are going in the direction we would like them to, um, we feel like we can trust. But that's really fake trust. It's very flimsy. We're trying to figure out a way to build our life on a trust that has a real foundation. And the real foundation is the trustworthiness of the heart of Jesus. So we can't control the future, obviously. We can affect it by the decisions and choices we make in our, in our present time, but we can't control it. And control is really gets at the crux of our relationship with Jesus. It comes down to trust. If we can't control something, we have to trust in his heart. 
And I just said to these young people last week, trust isn't that, uh, that Jesus will always make everything turn out the way I hope it will. That's what trust is in Jesus. That's not what real trust is. That's not even trust in a human relationship. Trust in a human relationship is a trust in the essence of the other, that you have a, a, a sense of faith and belief in the heart of the other. And that's what trust looks like in our relationship with Jesus as well. So, so I, here, here's just a, a, almost a rhetorical question, just from your perspective, Becky, do you think in general, most people mostly trust God for the future or they trust themselves for the future? I think that they trust mostly their selves for the future and also that they are, they need to control the actions of everyone around them for the future. Like, I think we take it actually to another level where we feel deeply that we need to control the actions of everyone else so that the future can end up the way that we want it to be. Yeah. Um, and that that's what we're seeing right now kind of spread across the, the nation. And we talked about this, if you guys didn't listen to, two episodes back, there was a really great discussion on the difference between anger and contempt. And I thought that that was a really good clarification about where we're at, but we're in a place right now where we're angry because we want people to view the world and the decisions the way that we, we see them. And then we're (laughs) expressing contempt because we're removing their identity and we're taking it a step further by by trying to convince and control everyone to make the same decisions the way that we see the world. And because we believe that our view will, is the best way forward. Um, And so it's, it is a form of control. It's a complete and total form of control on how we're going about doing everything around us. And it's destroying friendships. It's destroying family relationships. It's destroying church relationships. And, um, uh, that's why I think living in that fear and control, um, we're going to, we're going to get to a place where we take a step back and go, wow, what, what kind of spell was I under there? Um, and I can understand it completely, but I just don't have, I have so much faith in Jesus and what he can do that. I don't feel like I want to have any control um, over anything in my life anymore. I just want him to take the reins. So a couple things from, from what you just said, you, you mentioned the, the word destroy over and over again. It's important to pause for a second, take a big deep breath and remember that Jesus set, described his enemy as participating in only three things. These are the three things Satan does all day long. He kills, steals, and destroys. So when you hear yourself saying destroy, it should be a a trigger word for thinking about what's happening right now. Who has a vested interest in killing, stealing, and destroying? Who is the real enemy? This panic response that I've said we're sort of locked into a kind of a nationwide panic response right now, which is born out of fear. And a lot of it, just as you just described, fear of the future. What is the future going to be like? Bev and I have a friend that we shockingly discovered actually believes that, and and, and is preparing for a civil war. 
after November 3rd. I mean, for real, he's buying guns. He's getting gun training for he and his wife for whenever the other comes marching down their street. And this is the place that we've gotten to and it has nothing really to do with Jesus. It, it has everything to do with trying desperately to control the future. And when we try to control the future in this way, we participate in the destruction of, just as you just said, destruction of relationships, destruction of lives. Um, so our goal here is to, is to stay on the right team <laughs> because when we get lured onto, into this kind of path, we're playing for the wrong team now. So I, I ran across something online on the online Q&A site, Quora, which is a fascinating site. Uh, it's a place where you can post a question and then you get all kinds of answers and responses to it. And some of the answers are fascinating and go viral. And this is one of those, uh, one of those viral answers. So on this uh, site, Quora, someone posted this question. If you could know one thing about your future, what would it be about? If you could know one thing about your future, what would it be about? One of the people that answered got about a half a million people viewing his response. So here, I want to read you his whole response, and then Becky and I will talk about it. So here's his response to that question. I fundamentally disagree with the assumption of the question. The question assumes that there, there is some measure of value that lies in having knowledge of what will come in the future. I would argue that this assumption is incorrect, at least to my preferences. Time runs in only one direction, or at least to our experience, time runs in one direction. The romantic will be quick to fantasize about a reality in which one can fight the tide of time to move freely forward and backward through it at will. Indeed, many billions of dollars have been made on movies based on this, proving simply enough that this idea is very attractive. Well, I think that's what makes people so fond of this idea is that it makes the burden of decision-making much lighter. So if I'm going back to the past, if, if going back to the past is an option, I can be carefree in the present for I could always go back and correct my mistakes. For those who've seen the original Back to the Future movie, consider how the main character, Marty, is able to interact with his parents in the past in order to ensure that they have the occasion to meet and marry. The idea that we, would, we could reach back and make adjustments is a truly magnificent one, but I'd argue this romanticization misses an important point. For life to be meaningful, I would argue, we need our decisions to bear their full weight. The more weighty my actions, the more meaningful my life is. If I have as many do-overs as I please, my decisions and actions lose their meaning. The same goes for seeing the future. If I can see the future in order to give myself an advantageous position in the present, my present decisions become far less meaningful. If I knew what lays behind each of these doors, my decision would be nearly meaningless. It's the uncertainty and the significance of consequence that makes my decision mean something. So what do I wanna know about the future? Absolutely nothing. Do I sometimes really, really wish I could know the future? Of course, we all do. Nothing is as nerve wracking as uncertainty about the future. But seen in the bigger picture, I far prefer strict linearity and one dimensionality of time. So there's his response. And Becky, I, I wanted to ask you, he's making a case about the weightiness of our decisions 
that as, when we don't know the future, there's a weight to our life and that that's what gives life significance. What do you think about this guy's uh, argument about weightiness? I mean, I totally just want to know what is going to happen with this election and move on. Uh, every day when I hear some, you know, snippet of news or someone's, you know, strong opinion or, you know, see some strong reaction to this or that. And I see just how heavy it is on everyone in my life and all around me. I just want to hit the fast forward button and just like, I don't even care at this point (laughs) what the outcome is. I just want to know what the answer is so that I can move on and not have this be such a consuming part of my existence right now. I, I wish I could turn off everything, but it's just not really a, a it, for the kind of job I have, turning off the, the news and the media and social media is really not something that I have the luxury of doing. And so I, I just want to, I would love, I've been wanting to do this for months now, just, and every time someone brings it up, I just say, well, um, November 3rd is not that far away. And I don't want to talk about it until then. (laughs) So I, I just really, this like, kind of like, you know, the way that I've been describing it is like, you know, when you're, you know, you're married and you guys are, are at tension, but you haven't had the fight yet. Like you're in this tension and like the fight needs to happen and you can feel it in the air. And then once you have the fights, it's, you get through it and you say all the things and then you kind of move on from there. Like that's where we've been for so long as we're living in the tension before the fight. And I just want to get to the part where we've had the fight and we can get back to just, Oh, we really love each other and we like each other. And (laughs) I really love it. I I love that illustration you just made. (laughs) Uh, And that, that I was just thinking as you're talking too that, that this is something really to think about. Pause for a second. So the past and the future aren't a real moment. The o- only the present is our real moment. So you, another way of, of translating what this guy is saying in his response to the Cora question is, you can only have relationship in the present moment. You cannot enter into relationship in the past or in the future because those are not real moments. The only real moments we have are the present. That's what gives them weight. And that means that all of the things that transform us, all of the things that help grow us, all of the things that bring us joy are all in the present moment. Um, that's where we live out our relationships with each other and, and with Jesus. So the weight of the present moment, the desire to get out of the present moment and know what the future is, to relieve the pressure that we feel that is built up, then takes us out of the present where we can actually have agency over our life. So it's a dangerous sort of lure to, to grab onto the bait of knowing the future. Because uh, once, if we actually had that capability, I think this guy is right in saying it would empty our lives of significance and weight because the significance and weight of our lives is in our present relationships. So, so he's making a case here for why, uh, in his words, strict linearity and one-dimensionality is much better than knowing the future. But here's, a, here's an interesting thought before we dive into a couple of Jesus encounters. Jesus lives in all dimensions at the same time, past, present, and future. That's what makes God other than us. He is not like us in this way. 
He lives all moments in the present. So Becky, do you think it, given this guy's argument, does that take away the weight of Jesus's decisions? If he lives all moments at the same time, does that take away the weight or significance of his decisions? And, and how would you characterize in general, Jesus's relationship with the future? Know how it would work to know all yeah. of the things that he knows. Truthfully, I don't think that because he knows it's not like he's like, well, um, in the future, um, this person will live out their life exactly the way that they wanted it to. He knows that they won't get certain things that they really wanted. Um, and so, and he feels, he deeply feels for that person and everything they want. Like, I don't know how he balances his emotions and we know that he has emotions I don't know that I could balance all my emotions if I knew everything that he knew. I'm glad that I don't have his responsibility. Yeah, we uh, were having this discussion this very week with our group in the backyard uh, about this, this multidimensionality of God. If you can believe it, we were, we, it was the most animated part of the entire evening uh, uh, because there were some on one side that said, Jesus knows everything about the future. He's, it's, our life is like a movie that he can fast forward through. And then there was others that said, no, that, that doesn't work. And, and I threw in and said, one thing we know for sure is that Jesus has uh, paid the ultimate price to maintain the, the protection and safety of our freedom to choose. If we cannot freely choose to love him, then, then no love is possible. So he sacrificed everything to allow us to, to continue to freely choose to love him. So if he is doing what so many people casually say that God has a plan for my life and he's, and he's working out that plan, no matter what I do, what you're really saying is you're not a, you don't have free agency in your life. Therefore you cannot freely love Jesus. So that can't be true. Uh, we, we know that freedom must be true, but how is it? How can it be true if he lives in the past, present, and future all at the same time. This is the tension that we have around trying to understand the otherness of God. And Jesus answers this question by saying, look, gang, don't worry so much about this stuff that is very difficult for you to understand. I came as a, as a organic translator of the heart and character of God and his movement in your life. Pay attention to me. All you need to know is what you see in me. So for me, that is, uh, that, that's my trump card response for some of these things that we just have a hard time understanding because we don't live in a, in a multidimensional reality the way, the way God does. All we know that must be true is that he does live in that multidimension. And at the same time, in the present moment, he can be surprised because we saw Jesus surprised many times in the Gospels. And he wants us to maintain our agency. So let's drill down a little bit into this uh, by exploring a couple of, couple of encounters of Jesus' relationship with the future. And this is really about our craving to know what the future will bring, which we all have. And uh, we're going to explore that through first through an encounter he has with Peter on the beach that we've uh, looked at many times on this podcast before, but not through this filter. And then we're going to explore an entire teaching focus with his disciples. So the first, the first story is from John chapter 21, 18 through 23. John 21, 18 through 23. This is Jesus and Peter on the beach. So I'll read you this little interlude, and then Becky and I will talk about it. 
So uh, again, John 21, 18 through 23, if you want to flip open your Jesus-centered Bible to John 21, there you go. Starting in verse 18, I tell you the truth. He's talking to Peter, just as Jesus talking to Peter. I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Well, Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. Got to stop there for a second. Jesus is telling Peter something that's going to happen in his future. It's undeniable. This is what Jesus is trying to do here. He's trying to tell him, this is the kind of way you're going to die, Peter. So why would Jesus reveal something about Peter's future to him? We'll come back to that in a minute. Then Jesus continues. He tells him, follow me. Peter turned around and saw behind them the disciple Jesus loved, who was John, uh, the one who had leaned over to Jesus during supper and asked the Lord, who will betray you? Um, Peter asked Jesus, well, what about him, Lord? And Jesus replied, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? As for you, follow me. So the rumor spread among the community believers that this disciple wouldn't die. But that isn't what Jesus said at all. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? So here's this, one of my favorite encounters that Jesus has with anyone on the beach after his resurrection, before he ascends. And the first question is, well, why does Jesus refuse to answer Peter's question about John's future? Becky, why do you think he would not respond to Peter when he asked about John's future? Because it was none of his business. <laughs> Yeah, I think we talked about this a little We've bit. We've talked week about too. this before. I mean, yeah. it's just Jesus isn't going to tell you anything about someone else. He's only going to talk to you about you. He's not the he's not a gossiper, so he doesn't he doesn't tell people um, he doesn't reveal secrets about other people to people. He reveals secrets about you to people. Yeah, you don't show up to Jesus and and, <laughs> and get an appointment with his crystal ball and say. Can you tell me something about my friend, John? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, our friend Steph, who's been on this podcast before said that early on in her marriage, she was praying to Jesus about her husband and she wanted to know something about him. And he was like, that's totally not your business. Um, you know, that's between him and I, not you and I. So, yeah. so on uh, the but other we side definitely of that. want that to be the case. Yes. And on the other side of that, he does tell Peter something about his future. Well, I think that he was, he was inviting him in, in the same way that Jesus invited me in to go live in a van. Just, <laughs> I have something better for you and it's worth more than your life. And so will you come with me? And that's what he does is if you want to follow Jesus, there will be a point when he will ask you to leave something really important to you and, um, behind, and that can be small or it can be large. Like it's not the same for every person. He knows what that is for each person, but that's, that is the calling of, of God is that we have to leave something, uh, that we're holding on to that's more important to us than him behind. Yeah, and you know what? Let me throw something in there too, because a good way to, to translate what you're saying is what you just did less than a year ago. When you married, you were, you were being asked to leave something behind, the life that you knew, knew, that you knew as a single woman, 
and become married with all that that meant. But you eagerly, wonderfully, delightfully moved toward that, not because it was a sacrifice, but because the thing you were leaving behind was way overshadowed by the thing you were moving into. That's what people get so wrong uh, so often about following Jesus. They hear, I'm going to have to leave something behind. They don't realize that the thing they're leaving behind, that Jesus asked them to leave behind, is way overshadowed by the thing that he's inviting them into. And it comes, the leaving behind comes naturally to us because we see the greater thing in front of us and the lesser thing doesn't seem so big anymore to us. It's not, we, we talk about it in sacrificial terms, and of course it is, but it's so overshadowed by what we're drawn into that it's, it's not the same. It, it, it's not the, I have so many friends, especially coming out of college that thought in order to be a quote unquote serious Christian, you had to do the hardest things. You had to give up the most, do the hardest things. It's a form of Phariseeism really that the, those that, that perform the best are the most holy. It's wrong. Jesus simply wants us to taste and see the goodness of his heart. And as we do the things that we thought we couldn't do without, oh, we can somehow do without those things because we've been captured by something much bigger. And he also perfectly times that. If, if God had yeah. asked me to go do what I did a year before, six months before, three months before, I would have been like, no way, right? I was in no way ready for that. But by the time I was where he asked me to do that, it was like, that sounds so much better than what I'm doing right now. Yeah. That sounds so much better. Yeah. So it's, it was not a hard invitation. It was easy for me to be like, yes, I want to go live in a van. <laughs> <laughs> Down by the river. <laughs> I want to go live in a van. <laughs> That's so good. So we obviously, we want Jesus to reveal our future to us and to, and that the reason for that is we want comfort and reassurance about the unknown. But why doesn't he typically do this? I'm not saying he wouldn't, doesn't ever do this, but why, in your mind, why doesn't he typically do that, relieve our, our stress and anxiety about the future by simply telling us what's going to happen? Why, why wouldn't he do that more often than he does? Well, I think that probably because if he asked us if he asked us to do those kinds of things all the time, it would be, we're just not wired that way. We're not wired. We're wired for comfort. We're wired for security. We're wired for safety. And um, I think that Jesus, he understands and loves us. And so he, he gently nudges us towards these things, but he doesn't, he's not a God who like pulls the rug out from under you all the time. He just knows that he didn't make us that way. Um, and so he does it in a way that is much more gentle. I don't, that's my, my that's thought good. on it. I mean, if you, and if we think about in this particular encounter where Jesus does reveal something to Peter about his future, one of the things that, that's always struck me about this is that Peter's life ambition was to die for Jesus. Once he had ruined, his life was ruined for Jesus over and over again, he said to Jesus, I'm going to die for you because that was an accurate expression of his passion and love for Jesus. He was willing to die, and then he didn't. Then he ran away in the face of a little girl. Um, that he destroyed that whole part of his identity. He could no longer say with certainty that that is true about me, because he had just done the opposite. 
So Jesus, uh, right before he ascends, tells Peter, hey, Peter, I almost pictured Jesus smiling a little, nudging him with his elbow. Hey, Peter, that thing you wanted to do, <laughs> it's going to happen, man. You are going to be crucified. And it, in a bizarro way, it is giving back to Peter his deepest desire and, and reaffirming the reality of Peter's love for him. That, yes, Peter, you, you, I believed you when you said you would die for me. And that's not gone. It's going to happen. Um, it is who, really who you are. So I thought the other thing we could do is look at this extended teaching that Jesus did in Matthew 24. I'm just going to read it, and then we'll ask a couple of simple questions about it. And I'm not going to read this whole, the, the entire passage. This is just Jesus really specifically teaching about the future to his disciples. It's in Matthew 24 and uh, parts of uh, all of that chapter. So let me just read this, and I have a couple of simple questions to ask afterwards. So it starts in Matthew 24, 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple grounds, his disciples pointed out to him the various temple buildings. But he responded, you see all these buildings? I'll tell you the truth, they'll be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, and his disciples came to him privately and said, um, tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will signal your return in the end of the world? Jesus told them, don't let anyone mislead you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. And you'll hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be fam famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world. But all of this is only the first of the birth pains, with more to come. And then you'll be arrested and persecuted and killed. You'll be hated all over the world because you're my followers. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere. And, and the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it and then the end will come. Skipping a, uh, skipping a little section here down to the end of the chapter. Now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all of these things that I've said, you can know that his return is very near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. When the Son of Man returns, it'll be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. Two men will be working together in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at the meal, mill. One will be taken, the other left. So you too must keep watch, for you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Understand this, if the homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. A faithful, sensible servant is one to whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds that the servant has done a good job, there'll be a reward. I tell you the truth, the master will put that servant in charge of all he owns. But what if the servant is evil and thinks, 
Uh, my master won't be back for a while. And he begins beating the other servants and partying, getting drunk. Well, the master will return unannounced and unexpected, and he'll cut the servant to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There you go. Wow. That'll wake you up in the morning if you hear Jesus going on about that. So we're, in this passage, Becky, we're, we're, it, it, it taps into something that's universal even for us today. We're so drawn to signs. We want a sign about something. We want certainty about the future. And, and we've already talked about Jesus being evasive about, about that. I'm wondering, what do you notice about Jesus' description of the signs that will precede his return? I mean, there's a bunch of them here. What do you, I, I just thought this would be fun uh, just for a second here for us to, to dig into those signs. And what do you notice about those signs? They're like signs from every era. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, I don't know that there's been a time. I mean, in my nearly 40 years, I think every decade there's been something like some series of events that have caused people to point to the end times and prepare for the end times. Um, I think that we can look back in history and point to even far worse than today. Um, I mean, the Holocaust would be one of them. Um, but, you know, even... Or even, even you could even go back to, you could say the Civil War. Yes. Was a horrible time. <laughs> the Civil Rights Movement during that time was a was so horrible much. time in our country. But even predating our time in America, there were times before that that were worse than this. So like the Crusades. And um, so I think that there have been many, many times where we could point to this. And I think the point is that these signs are going to always be going on. But the point is that you don't know when the son of man is coming back. And so it's all about pointing our eyes and our, our hearts towards Jesus, despite what's going on. You know, what's um, interesting too, Becky, about what you just said, that we don't know when he's coming back. There's an entire Christian industry built up around, uh, you know, uh, the prediction. figuring out in a kind of a national treasure way, all of the clues to pinpoint when he's actually coming back, when Jesus couldn't be more clear. Uh, you're not going to know. The real issue here is, will you be on watch for it? Not when you will know that I'm exactly coming, because that's what the disciples want to know. Can you pinpoint this for us, Jesus? And Jesus is essentially saying, um, yeah, let me pinpoint it for you. I'll give you a list of things happening in the world that, as you just said, Becky, are going to be happening in the world at any moment in history from now to the end of time. <laughs> it's so funny what Jesus does here. And by giving them the specificity they want, everyone at any time in history could say, well, that's this time. That's right. <laughs> that's this time. And five years from now, it will be that time again. Yep. His real emphasis here is on what you might call watchfulness. So let's close off with this from, from this passage. Why do you think Jesus emphasizes the importance of keeping watch? And why, how does that impact our everyday life? Well, because I think that as, as human beings, we kind of, we follow Jesus, we fall off of Jesus. We, you know, we, we're, we're human. So we're not perfect beings, even when we um, you know, become a Christian and accept the Holy Spirit. Like we have, we have human 
sin that's constantly waging war against what God really wants, how he wants us to live and who he wants us to be and where he wants us to point our eyes and our heart. And so I think what he's saying is like, you're going to have to be vigilant your entire life to keep your eyes on me and not to fall into traps of um, doing all the things that I'm warning you against. And one of those is fear. He says not to be afraid 365 times in the Bible, because he really wanted to make sure that you understood that. That was a you know, it's a shining moment into the Bible that there's going to be a lot of things that we're afraid of. And he's asking us to please trust him, not to be afraid to keep living a life that is about honoring him. And that is about pointing our hearts to him. That's about inviting him in with us and not worrying about what everyone else is doing. So that's what, that's what this is all about. There's going to be every part of your life that's going to look like the end times. Despite that, fear not, follow me. Yeah, so good. And, and it goes back to something we talked about at the very beginning, that, that what we crave as sheep, because we are sheep, what we crave is our circumstantial certainty. We want Jesus to tell us that everything's going to work out the, the way we hope. That's just human that's just a human response to the uncertainty of life. Um, but Jesus is consistently, when he says, don't fear, you, you nailed it, I think, Becky. He's really saying, um, I don't want you to have a relationship with me like I'm a vending machine, where you push the button and I give you what you ordered. I want an intimate, real relationship. And that requires dependence in the present moment. And that means that you will need to learn to trust me in the present moment when the price tag of that trust is very high. That's how deep relationships are built. Trusting when there's something on the line. That's what marriage is. Trusting another person when there's something really big on the line. That's what deepens the intimacy that we all crave at the, at the core of our being. And that's what Jesus wants at the core of his being. He wants an intimate relationship. That means that the only way that can happen is in the present moment when we don't know if our circumstances will all turn out the way we hoped. Uh, that, that's, that's the real test. Uh, many people have asked me uh, after I got laid off from group and was unemployed for three and a half months, they would ask me uh, the normal human question, are you anxious? Are you stressed about this? And at the beginning, I was in shock and trying to get my mind around this. But after that, um, because I was just repeatedly going to Jesus and airing, putting, dragging into the light all of the thoughts and things that I was feeling inside, and I was giving them to him. And he was, his reassurance to me was uh, always about his presence in my unknown future, meaning I'm going to be there with you for this, Rick. And over time, it didn't, it didn't even take that long. I began to just relax about what was going to happen. It wasn't because circumstantially I had all of these ideas about how this was going to work out for me. It was really based on, um, I know who he is right now in my life. And I know who he will be five years from me, five years from now in my life. I trust him. Um, I had this, uh, I prayed the other night for our young people in the backyard 
Uh, we do this often where we do uh, experiential, creative ways of praying. And I just ask Jesus at the end of our time to give me a picture of something that somebody in that backyard was afraid of and needed help with, to, that he would give me a picture of that and I would pray just based on his, his input. And the picture I got was this spiral staircase going up into the sky and it went right into a dark cloud. And out of the dark cloud came the hand of Jesus down below the, where you couldn't see anything anymore. It reached down through the cloud to the staircase where a person was climbing the staircase. So I prayed for the group. I, I said, if this, is, if this represents a fear you have, I'm just going to pray on your behalf. Well, after this, about a day afterwards, I was thinking about that, vi that picture that Jesus gave me. And Jesus nudged me and said, Rick, that was for you too. That was for you too. That's your life. And you see a, dark, a cloud in front of you as you ascend the staircase. And I'm reaching my hand down through the cloud to let you know I'm in the cloud already. I will help guide you through it. That's what he really wants in the end is that kind of intimate, trusting relationship where somehow, some way in the midst of this chaos, we can find peace and joy in, our, in the covering of our trust of him. Any last thing you want to throw out there, um, Becky, before we close off? Yeah, I, well, there was something that um, somebody put, uh, a friend of mine who, um, her, her business type has been, ex has been affected by COVID. It's, it's the kind of business type that probably won't continue. Um, she, all of her business was canceled for, the whole entire year because um, she does large event planning. And so she's having to face this reality. And I think in the beginning she was like, well, let's just see what happens next. Maybe in a few months, maybe in a few months. And she put up a video yesterday on Instagram and she talked about how for the last uh, six months, she's been driving with her right-hand turn signal on and that she's been driving down the road, her right-hand turn signal has been on. Uh, she's been that annoying person driving with her right-hand turn signal on because she was too afraid to turn right. And so what she was trying to express to us that was, was that her business was going to have to change. That what she did as a business owner was not going to be viable um, in the foreseeable future. She couldn't afford for her family to continue another year pretending that what is happening now is not happening. And so she's going to be taking a right-hand turn and that she's um, going to be announcing what that right-hand turn for her is soon. And so I would say fear has all kinds of different uh, facets to it right now. Um, fear can control, can, can come up in your life um, looking like trying to control the actions of other people. Um, fear can come up in our lives like being in the driving, driving down the road with your right-hand turn signal on because you're avoiding a very important shift that you need to make. And there's a lot of people like my friend who um, their livelihood, they can't keep not making a decision. They have got to make a decision. It's scary. It's scary to make that decision. That right-hand turn is scary for her. Um, but, be, but we have to start making those right-hand turns. We have to start acting in reality um, I was speaking to another woman this week and I said something about, um, 
the way that marketing is shifting that I'm seeing in the last six months from how businesses are deciding to move forward with their marketing. And she said, well, do you think that this is a permanent reality? And I said, yes, I think this is a permanent reality. And that the people who are accepting that reality and taking action based on that reality are going to continue to have businesses moving forward. But those people who are avoiding reality and not making those those hard decisions and shifts, it's going, it, that's acting in fear. So look at your, at, look at some of the things you're doing. Are you driving and the right-hand turn signal is clearly on and it's time to turn right? Hmm. That could be that you're choosing to live in fear right now. And, and just to put a, an exclamation mark on that, that the way that you finally turn the wheel and follow the turn signal is not because of circumstantial certainty. It's because, it's because you trust. You trust Jesus through the cloud, that he's going to lower his hand through the cloud and invite you to follow him. So uh, that's what I encourage everyone listening now to, uh, to just grab onto that hand as it comes through the cloud. Uh, find your way back to intimacy and dependence on him. Well, gang, thanks for listening. Um, and uh, uh, the future is now for me. I'm about to start something new next Monday. In next week's episode, I'll tell you all about that, um, and it'll be exciting to share that with you. If you want to uh, uh, access any of the things that we've talked about today, the Jesus-Centered uh, Daily or any of the other Jesus-Centered resources that you've heard about over the length of time of this podcast, just go to PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com, and uh, you're going to look for Season 5, Episode 37, and you'll see all the links there. Don't forget, by the way, if you want to check out a little sample of the Jesus Center Daily, go to jesuscenteredaily.com. Just click on the button. You'll get a free sample. You can watch my video or order a copy. So this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from ricklawrence.com. Uh, Becky and I will attack a new present concern next, next week. We'll see what that is. But if you don't want to miss an episode of this podcast, just subscribe to us on Google Play or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll talk again next time. Bye, Becky. Bye.